Yeah, well, it's kind of comical to watch because, you know, it really starts from the REIT analysts on Wall Street. And it's every year it's sort of the same thing, which is, hey, there's so much supply. Hey, home purchases are so much easier in the Sun Belt. It's cheaper than elsewhere. There's too much risk. And every year it proves out that basically a lot of analysts are overstating the impact of supply, understating the impact of demand. Good morning and welcome to Deconstruct. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. Today, we're going to dig into a region that hundreds, if not thousands, of multifamily developers have really taken a liking to. The Sun Belt. Right. So for those who are unfamiliar, the Sun Belt is actually a huge swath of the United States. It encompasses 18 states across the southern third of the country. So if you imagine you're traveling east, you'll hit Phoenix, Las Vegas, Denver, Dallas and Houston and Texas, hop over to Atlanta and then Jacksonville, Florida. And when I said apartment builders have taken a liking to the area, I really mean it. We saw a surge of investment during the pandemic when a lot of these cities saw booms in population growth. Consulting firm Altus said multifamily deals were nearly double in the first quarter of 2022 compared to the same period in 2019. And that investment also followed surging rent growth in Sunbelt cities. Like if we take Phoenix, for example, in January 2021, a one-bedroom cost $1,000 a month on average. This month, one bedroom rents average $1,400. That's according to Zumper. So a 40% increase in rent in just two years. Right. But now rents are starting to cool across these cities as are national rents. And interest rates have skyrocketed. So we're going to dig into how that's affecting buyers who purchased apartment complexes in these places while interest rates were low. Yeah, you had that story in this month's magazine about Tide's Equities, which bought billions of dollars worth of apartment complexes across the Sun Belt using, unfortunately for them, floating rate debt. And now they're getting squeezed. Yeah, I'll get into some of their issues there. I also spoke to Jay Parsons. He's the chief economist at RealPage, which is a software firm that tracks apartment data. Small plug here, but Jay has one of my favorite real estate Twitters. It's these very granular but very clear breakdowns of what rental data means for the market. We got into some of the myths surfacing about the Sunbelt's decline and where rents and investment are actually headed. Yeah, I actually spoke to Jay for that Tides Equity story. So a good um, a good connection there. I'm very excited to get into that. But first, let's look over the top news of last week. So to start, we saw a massive default linked to more than seven office buildings across the country. Columbia Property Trust defaulted on $1.7 billion in loans tied to some of its properties in New York, San Francisco, Boston, and New Jersey. And Isabella, I know you had that story. So what happened there exactly? Yeah, so those loans were all floating rates. So Columbia, which is owned by investment manager PIMCO, was definitely feeling the pain of rising rates. The firm is now working with some of its lenders to restructure the loan package. But whether that's an extension or a forbearance or some other sort of workout or a deed in lieu of foreclosure, it's not really clear yet. It could be any of those things. The other thing that was interesting was that Twitter was a tenant on two of the buildings in the portfolio. At 650 California, 
Virginia Street in San Francisco and 245 West 17th Street in Manhattan. As we've covered before, Twitter stopped paying rent on a number of its properties after Elon Musk took the firm private last year. Mm, Okay. In San Francisco, was that one of the properties where the landlord actually sued over unpaid rent? Yeah. So late last year, Columbia Property Trust had actually sued Twitter, claiming it owed $136,000 in back rent. Okay. So we know no payments going through there. Yeah. In other distress-related news, two stories here. One, the Chitreat Group defaulted on an $85 million loan that was covering a development site at Hudson Yards. That loan is now being marketed for sale. And Madison Realty Capital, which is a firm that typically scoops up distressed debt, is facing foreclosure on its retail condo at one Hanson place, and that's in downtown Brooklyn. Wow. It seems to be a lot of distress cropping up. Yes, and I'm sure that we will see more of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is only the beginning. In other news, Rupert Murdoch's deal to sell off Move Inc. from News Corp to CoStar has fizzled out. Move owns Realtor.com. CoStar's CEO announced that the deal was off during its earnings call last week. Okay, so is is News Corp still looking to sell them? So I think it still is. It was kind of a little bit unclear. It's the Wall Street Journal, which is owned by News Corp, reported that the company has received a number of expressions of interest. So we'll see if anyone bites there and moves forward. But they were looking to do kind of a strategic reorganization of their real estate holdings. The last story I wanted to bring up came out of Miami last week. So reporter Francisco Alvarado found that prices for Miami development sites, they actually plummeted in the second half of last year. Let me guess, rising interest rates. Yes, interest rates added again. Given that borrowing costs increased, buyers basically slammed the brakes on how much they wanted to actually pay for land you could build on. I think we were talking about this a couple weeks ago, but South Florida, even though it's been this hot spot for commercial and residential investment over the last couple of years, that area isn't immune to the effects of the larger macroeconomic environment. Yeah, that story really shows it. And that's a good segue into our discussion about the Sun Belt. It's another region that isn't immune to rising rates and higher borrowing costs and the overall slowdown in the market. Yeah. Could you actually start with Tide's equities? Sure. So I worked on the story with Joe Lovinger, and we really just wanted to look at who Tide's was. The firm was one of the most aggressive multifamily buyers over the last two years. They bought more than $6.5 billion worth of apartments across the Sun Belt. In Texas, it seemed like we were writing a story about them like every few days. They were kind of there was a barrage of press releases. It was, you know, they picked up another 200 unit apartment. And Joe wrote this line in the story that said kind of they all started to look the same. It was actually really hard to differentiate which apartment complex we were talking about. So I knew that they had used short term floating rate debt for most of their acquisitions. Which means they'd be affected by rising rates because when rates rise, so do their monthly payments. And I just wanted to jump in with a question. So these firms that they picked up these floating rate loans and they're looking to redo these properties, you know, pump money into them, renovate and then sell them. Did they think that interest rates would just stay where they were forever? I think that was part of it. And there were definitely these companies did obtain rate caps, so they had some sort of protection. But I think that they were really betting on the fact that rents were going to continue to rise and they never saw interest rates going up by this much. So they thought that if they had, you know, a rate cap of 3%, that would protect them. But then suddenly they're into their rate caps on all of their properties. So, you know, their monthly payments are going up by a lot. But I think it's a combination of 
you know, rates were so, so historically low, you know, sub 1%. And then they rose in such a quick amount of time. Okay, yeah, that that kind of seems like a better way to think about it. So it's not like they thought, all right, interest rates will never rise again. It was just that they got stuck when rates went up as fast as they did. Right. We saw seven increases over the course of 2022. And so many of those were kind of three quarter percentage point increases, which is, you know, more than the Fed has ever done. Right. Those jumbo bumps. Exactly. So what we found is that debt payments on properties tides had purchased in the latter half of 2022 were really soaring, putting the firm in a tough spot. Either it would have to raise rents on some of those properties and its net operating income or risk default. In 2021, they could easily double the rents, right? Buy a complex, renovate apartments quickly, and then charge much, much higher rents because the market was going up. Take that example you gave of Phoenix earlier where rents were going up, you know, 20% a year. That was their whole business plan. But as I said before, it was at a time when these markets were seeing you know, such high rent growth and interest rates are really low. But now rents are actually dropping in some of these markets. So it's a lot harder to justify those huge rent increases. But Tides is going to have to if it wants to meet its debt payments. This is one example we had in the story. Um, It's an apartment complex in Fort Worth called Tides on Oakland Hills that the company bought in June. When Tides bought the complex, it was bringing in about $1.1 million in net operating income. But at the time, it even said at the time of the acquisition, it needed $1.8 million to service the debt. So it had to raise its net operating income somehow. And that was based on, I think they bought the property with an interest rate of 4.85%. So pretty high compared to what we've seen in the last couple of years. But then rates rose. So Tides now has to pay about $2.2 million a year to service the debt. So, you know, that's an extra 400000 that they have to make up. And that's just to break even. You know, that's with a rate cap, which does limit the interest rate. But it's still, you know, a really hefty jump from that $1.8 million. Um, so now it will have to double its net operating income to break even. So the question is whether it can. When is the loan on that property coming due? It's not due until next year, so obviously things could change. I guess theoretically the Fed could lower rates, but that's really not likely. Economists are saying that the Fed will likely pause raising rates sometime this year, but not yet. If that doesn't happen, if rates don't come down, ties will be stuck into its rate caps on most of its properties for a long time. And, you know, I guess the question is whether they can actually manage to flip rents at some of their complexes. I guess time will tell. But the thing about Tides is it's an investor whose experience represents just a sliver of what's actually going on in the Sun Belt. Apart from your story, Isabella, we've we've seen headlines talking about canceled contracts in the Sun Belt and firms launching funds to target distress that they believe will soon emerge in the region. But in reality, the Sun Belt's cooling rents don't signal this super steep downslide. More so, they're par for the course with what's happening nationally, which is that rent growth is cooling. Here's my conversation with Jay. Jay Parsons, the chief economist at RealPage. On the misconceptions around plummeting demand and distressed assets. So I figured we could start with a little bit of background. Last week, I saw you were tweeting about the dire outlooks you were seeing for the Sun Belt, and somebody replied that the region has always been you know, prone to boom and bust cycles as far as rent growth. But you said that's not quite right. So historically, I'm wondering 
how has the Sunbelt performed as far as multifamily? Yeah, you know, a lot of investors and, and really just observers of the multifamily market still view the Sunbelt um, as kind of the 1990s version of, of itself, where it's kind of these awkward teenage markets that are boom and bust. That just isn't the case anymore. I mean, certainly are spots like Phoenix, we still see a little bit of that. But uh, when you look across Texas, the Carolinas, and uh, even you know Tennessee, parts of Florida, you know these markets have been very resilient, and then on the multifamily side, have seen better risk-adjusted returns than major coastal markets, which are generally viewed as less risky and more stable, and they've not held up to that reputation. Can you remind us how the pandemic affected the performance of the Sun Belt? When the pandemic hit, obviously, everyone was initially lockdowns, everyone's in place, nothing's happening, we see layoffs, and so that impacted every market across the country. But then a couple months later, really beginning in May, we started to see a sharp change. This was happening in the forest sale housing market, the single-family rental market, and in the multifamily rental market, where all of a sudden people were looking around again. They wanted a place to live, or maybe they wanted more space. So that summer, there was a huge boom in demand. And that really started in the Sunbelt, which generally, you know, right or wrong, didn't have lockdown uh, policies that were quite as strict to what was happening elsewhere in the country. And then at the same time, uh, come summer, once it was clear that this was going to last a while, we started to see a lot of migration as well. And I want to be careful because I think, you know, there, there's some overstatement of this. You know, I'm not in the camp thinks everybody just picked up and left out of New York and San Francisco moved to the Sunbelt. But I think what we did see is some people who were maybe planning to move anyway at some point down the line and thought, you know what, let's just go ahead and do this now. And so it was really this kind of perfect storm of events. And what happened is we quickly saw single family home demand went up, uh, rental demand went up, and then you get to 2021 and all of a sudden you have huge growth in home prices and also big growth in rents as well. I remember speaking to an investor, I guess it was like a year ago at this point, but he was pulling out of all of his multifamily holdings in Texas because he thought that the market had peaked. And he was saying that buildings were overpriced and rent growth was cresting and he saw opportunity in New York's market. So he wanted to go there instead. So I'm curious about that hypothesis that the Sun Belt peaked earlier than coastal markets during the pandemic recovery. Is that because people started moving out after they had moved in, or was it because there was an oversupply issue? What happened there? Yeah, that was a pretty common view, particularly among a lot of the Wall Street analysts who were trumpeting that idea. And, you know, it really didn't play out. What we saw is that the big coastal cities, you know, particularly New York and San Francisco, took it on the chin the most during COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, but obviously other places like Los Angeles, Seattle, D.C., Boston, these are generally considered the core six coastal markets. And what we noticed is that that philosophy, that, that view didn't really play out where when the market started to cool off in, uh, you know, summer of last year, it, it really happened all over the country. So just because the Sunbelt got an earlier start, uh, the slowdown or the cooling period basically followed the same trajectory across the country. Now, I will say, though, that I think New York's been a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, we've seen more resiliency there than we've seen in other coastal cities. Um, obviously, did get a late start, but also there's been a lot of demand coming back into the city. And I think what we've seen is, you know, it's interesting. There's so much focus on the, um, you know, kind of return to work. And uh, but it really wasn't that. I mean, obviously, a lot of people in New York who are still working from home, but they want to be in the city. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, the availability of the vaccines is probably a bigger deal than return to work policy itself. But again, it's really not so much about a slowdown in the Sunbelt in particular about supply or anything else. 
It really just was the fact that middle of last year, we started to see a freeze in household formation, migration, people stopped, you know, moving around. And my view is you look at consumer confidence, it started to really drop off last year as inflation went up. And, you know, not just the price of of, of housing, buying or renting a house, but it was also, you know, gro- groceries and gas. I mean, you know, you go to the grocery store every week and prices were up 13% year over year, paying more for milk and eggs and everything else. And so I think that created some nervousness all across the country where people, you know, just decided to kind of wait things out a little bit. And that's what drove that slowdown. Yeah, I remember reading something you wrote about that and just saying that people are in wait and see mode. And I mean, it makes sense. Like when you're unsure about what's coming next, you're not going to make a big move or buy a house or anything. Yeah, I think human nature is when you're uncertain, you do nothing. And I mean, that's I think that's true for, you know, for, for individuals, for investors. Um, and so people want to have a little bit of certainty. And, and so, you know, our hope is that as inflation cools and hopefully the job market holds up, that uh, people will feel you know, better about their position in the world and and, uh, hopefully behave more normally. So going back to the Sun Belt, you said that the declines we saw in year over year growth that was happening nationally. I want to dig into that a little bit more because my colleague actually who co-hosts the podcast with me, Isabella Farr, I think you talked to her about this story about Tide's equities and investors who got into the Sun Belt when rates were low and rents were still going up. And now some of them are getting squeezed. I've also read about certain firms trying to benefit off of the distress that's cropping up there. Is that unique to the Sunbelt because of the trajectory of rent growth? Or is that just sort of happening across the country as far as investors getting in when rates are low and rents are just starting to go up? And then now if they have a variable rate loan, they're dealing with a higher interest payment and the rent growth isn't there anymore. First of all, it's happening all across the country, and there's really a few pockets. There's a few categories you kind of watch for potential distress, and it's really not happening quite yet. But number one is you have, you know, obviously a lot of new construction right now. And so if you have groups that all of a sudden are not able to reach their initial goals for, you know, leasing and rents, then they may need to raise additional capital. Uh, number two, you have groups that um, were heavy value add players. And this is the, you know, the housing equivalent of like flippers, basically, where they're buying a property, in this case, at a high price with usually a lot of leverage with the intent of doing a capital intensive renovation and then selling the property to somebody else. Now, that's happening all across the country, but because there's been so much investment in the Sunbelt, certainly the Sunbelt has gotten more attention for that. And so there's definitely risk. And so particularly if you look at companies that bought last year at high pricing with floating rate debt, they're kind of getting hit by double whammy, which is one, they're having to now see much higher interest rates or rate caps. And then number two, it's now much harder to achieve the target rent that they were hoping to achieve from a renovation just because the market has has slowed down so much. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that there's going to be some distress, but I think it's important not to extrapolate that where it's like, it's not like everybody who bought is, is all of a sudden going to be in distress. It really has a lot more to do with interest rates and the cost of debt going up so much and people with short-term debt exposure. You know, 99% of long-term holders are not going to have any issue here. And so the fundamentals, you know, even though they're cooling off, they're not falling off the cliff. And then the last thing I'll make on this point, kind of third thing here is that um, there's a debt analyst company, TREP, you may know, mm-hmm. you know, TREP um, put out some great research. They, no- they noted 10 mar- multifamily markets to watch for potential distress. And only one of them was a Sunbelt market. It was Houston. And then, and even I, as a Sunbelt backer, was a little bit surprised by that. But uh, 
you know, they listed San Francisco, Seattle, San Jose, New York, uh, all higher than most Sunbelt markets in terms of potential distress. So why do you think there's so much focus on the Sunbelt? You had this tweet saying every year since 2010, there's been these predictions. So what's what's the deal there? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's kind of comical to watch because, you know, it really starts from, uh, you know, a lot of the, the REIT analysts on Wall Street. And it's every year, it's sort of the same thing, which is, hey, there's so much supply Hey, home purchases are so much easier in the Sun Belt. It's cheaper than elsewhere. There's too much risk. And every year, it proves out that basically a lot of analysts are overstating the impact of supply, understating the impact of demand. And so I think, though, the reason it's getting so much focus is that the capital has really shifted so much toward the Sun Belt. In fact, even some publicly traded REITs who were not in the Sun Belt, uh, like Equity Residential and Avalon Bay, they're now back into the Sunbelt. They're reinvesting in it. And so I think that additional you know, shift of capital into the Sunbelt has brought some skepticism, but um, I would argue it's warranted, again, especially for long-term holders. And we have seen year-over-year declines start to happen. Are we expecting those to continue in the Sunbelt and just nationally? What are you, what are you seeing there? Yeah, no, we are seeing in a handful of spots, uh, particularly Phoenix and Las Vegas have uh, gone negative for year-over-year rent change. Um, you know, at this point, we're not expecting to see that nationally or even in most Sunbelt markets. But uh, what we are expecting is to see just a lot of volatility um, and particularly in pockets where there's a lot of supply. So, you know, there's apartment construction all across the country is at 40 year highs. A lot of it is very concentrated in and around downtown neighborhoods and you know gentrifying neighborhoods around downtown. It's very class A luxury, high rent product that's all competing for you know generally six figure income household renters, and so it's a finite pool. And so I think there's going to be pockets where we do see some pretty sharp rent cuts just because there's you know there's a short term supply demand imbalance, and I'm not I don't believe like a long term oversupply story, but in the short term you could have a temporary imbalance when it's going to take some time for demand to catch up. But, you know, the vast majority of the apartment stock is suburban class B with rent levels that are, you know, 30 or 40 percent cheaper than today's new construction. So it's really not impacted as much. And there'll be some impact, but it's not as impacted by this big volume of supply. And so most of the market is somewhat insulated from it. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud, or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me or Susanna at podcasts at therealdeal.com. Next week, we're looking at Brookfield's defaults in downtown LA and what it means for the overall office market there. Tune in then.